Welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership in data science and artificial intelligence. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. Today, we have a different type of episode. I recently participated in a panel discussion at the Australian Taxation Office. They had a whole week dedicated to data analytics, and they showcased the work being done in different parts of the ATO. And they also invited guest speakers and panelists to discuss what is happening in the industry. I was fortunate enough to be invited to speak. And because I was in a panel, you'll hear my responses to some of the questions. We discussed four topics. The first one is new things that are coming up in the industry. The second part is on views, my views on privacy. The third part is on quantum computing and how that is going to affect machine learning. And the fourth one is new developments on AI and how they're impacting jobs. I hope you enjoy the episode. Here is the panel discussion at the Australian Taxation Office. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks so much for having me today. And I got to say, the program that you guys are doing this week is amazing. There are so few organizations out there that are willing to invest this amount of time into their people and sharing the knowledge and better preparing them for what's coming in the future. I think it's extremely commendable that the ATO is doing this, that all of you get a chance to participate in it. Really, really admirable, something that I'll be taking back to industry and telling them how a program like this can be done, that it is possible. And that can be done across the country as well, multiple cities. So congratulations and very, very commendable initiative. And thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, so I'm Felipe Flores and I work in Liberty Financial as GM of Data Science. And I also have this podcast called Data Futurology, where every week I sit down with a leader or an executive in the data analytics space and I get them to tell me their story, their mistakes, their lessons learned. And I try to extract the learnings that can be passed on to the audience, to the next generation of data leaders, to other leaders out there. Some of the other things that we cover are interesting applications of machine learning and AI. I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. And as mentioned before, it just got a million downloads. We just hit through or a million listens just this week. With, through that, I get to have really interesting conversations and sort of keep a, a bit of a finger on the pulse of what's happening in the market. And there's a few things that are happening out there today. Some are starting and some are coming a bit further down the road into the future. And I wanted to share some of those uh, with you. One of the first ones that is starting to happen at the moment that I'm seeing more and more, and I'm sure that, that you guys are thinking about this or, or starting in this journey as well, since you got initiatives like this that keep you so up to date. This one is around making the data analytics benefit the customer or the end user or the consumer almost separately to benefiting the organization. What I mean by that is so much of the analytical work that we do as analytics professionals, it is to benefit the organization. So we're trying to uh, reduce costs or improve revenues, improve profits. We're trying to make a significant impact on the way that the organization operates and on the key decisions that are being made in these organizations. We're trying to improve those through the use of data. It's very inward 
looking and in terms of inward towards the organization, the organization is the one that gets the main benefit. And you can think of even cases like Google and Facebook where they have the algorithms that they craft is so we as users spend the most amount of time on those platforms. So therefore they can put the most amount of ads in front of us. And that is their revenue source. So by making the content a bigger hook and more addictive, they're increasing their revenues. And obviously at the moment, it's starting to get a bit contentious about what are the benefits to society that those platforms bring. I think that the next wave of successful organizations with analytics are going to be the ones that are offering their analytics to the benefit of the consumer. And to do that in a way that is presenting meaningful insights to an individual that can help them live a lead a better life. So for example, I have a fitness watch, I have a Garmin watch. If I go for a run, it tells me what time, uh, what my time is for every kilometer that I've run. That's some data, it's being captured, it's being fed back to me. I would say to me, it's pretty low value. I'm not super into my running. I go sort of casually for a run, maybe a couple of times a week. I'm not trying to beat PBs. I'm just trying to stay fit. And having these measures as such a transactional and granular level, like a one kilometer, it doesn't mean anything to me. If we start thinking about how a company like a fitness watch can start benefiting me as an individual, if I'm going for a run and the watch can see that I'm going the same path that I did last week and the week before, and I get an update that says, you're starting to slow down, but last week you're also starting to, you were slowing down at the same pace and you picked it up and you finished strong. You can do that now and almost have this connected device, this thing that is tracking me, have it as a coach, as a fan, as something that, that will make me better. I think that that's some of the thinking that's starting to happen. I really like seeing, or I would like to see this in things like the newer cars. So when you think about cars, there's obviously a lot of talk about self-driving cars, and that's definitely coming into the future. But with the car technologies that is out there today, the cars out there today, the new ones come with a, a range of sensors and cameras, and they're making decisions like they have the adaptive, adaptive cruise control, that if there's a car in front that's slowing down and you have it on cruise control, your car starts to slow down as well. You have things like that, that is data that's being captured, that is being used for the decisions at that point in time, but it's not being aggregated and then provided back as insights to the user. So for example, if I got into my car after work one night and my car said in the dashboard, it said, Felipe, when you drive on Wednesday evenings after 8 p.m., you're at your most dangerous driving. That is today. If I got an alert like that, that was about my particular insights, I think that that would, in that case, you know, it would wake me up if I am more tired than other times that I drive, and it would make me pay more attention. And from there, you can even have choices where you can say, I would like the beeps, the lights, and the alerts to be louder and more insistent during that time where I'm at my highest risk. It could also give you feedback around your driving. It can say to me, you merged late. You're dangerous merger. You should watch out for that. And that starts to give you actual feedback of, starts to give you some reality because for example, when it comes to driving, it's something like 90% of people think that they're above average drivers. 
So it means that we're inherently more dangerous because we don't know really where we sit and starting to get some coaching at first that is personalized starts to reduce the barriers to that. I was talking with the CDO company in Western Australia where they were wanting to increase the performance of their natural gas plant. They started collecting the data and they wanted to feed it back to the operators. They said, if we tell the operators going, you're not doing a good job, you should improve your efficiency, these are the things that you should do, obviously that's going to be a terrible approach. What they did instead was they had these iPads uh, all around the plant that said it was personalized. And it said, Felipe, when you were doing this exact shift two weeks ago, you were operating the plant at 2% better capacity. Would you like to know how you did that? And then the operator had to swipe for yes. Yes, I would like to know how I did that. So it's all about you, you versus you. The machine is helping you and it asks you for permission to give you that information. So the operator said, yes, I would like to know how I did that better. And it would only give them two or maybe three pointers at a time. So it wasn't like a tsunami of information to say, change all these things right now. It was paced, it was methodical. And they did that for about nine months before going to the next level once people were way more comfortable with that they went to the next level to say other people like you when they were doing this shift they were one operating their plant one percent better would you like to know what they did and then you start getting this more of a community sense and then over time i think past the one and a half year mark or coming up to the two year mark then people just wanted the information they wanted to know how they could do better and then it was sort of open benchmarking and predictions so what i like about that example is that it was personalized it was to benefit the organization but you can think of that same framework redirected or repointed towards benefiting the individual that might be instead of managing or instead of operating a plant they could be operating their car so that's sort of the contract that I wanted to put there similarly in other industries I can tell you that we spoke about cars being connected and having this information a lot of cars now are being connected to wi-fi when they connect to your home's Wi-Fi, they're uploading all this data. And I know for a fact that some of the largest car manufacturers know the exact position and the travel that your car took and how the car is functioning. But that information is not being fed back to you as a user. If you think on the side of groceries, I know for a fact that the biggest grocery retailers in Australia, that they predict when I and you, when we're going to buy toilet paper next. So they have their predictive algorithms that say on Friday, 22nd of November, we expect Felipe to buy toilet paper. And then if I don't buy that, my toilet paper from that particular grocery retailer, they mark it as that I must have bought it from the competitor and that for the next cycle, they estimate when that would be the next time that I'll go and buy toilet paper. And they say, we'll see if that time he'll come and buy it from us. So that information obviously being fed internally to help the organization and they're doing customized promotions through this and uh, things like that. I would love to get a reminder in the app for say Coles or Woolies, say I got the Woolies app or the Coles app, I would love to get a reminder to say, we think that today you need milk, coffee, eggs, and pasta and toilet paper. One click buy and we'll get it delivered to you. I don't know about you, I would love to have a functionality like that. And it's literally just a reuse, a refactoring of something that they already have and that they're, they're using on their business every day. That's sort of the mindset shift that I'm starting to see. The analytics is so far only geared towards benefiting the company internally. And that same capability, the same work that's already done, the same data that's been prepared, usually like very similar or the same algorithms, all the work that's been done, it can be taken and repointed towards benefiting the individual consumer 
And that would, I think, radically transform the relationships that we have with organizations when it comes to trust. And I think that in the world that we're going to, trust is going to win the game. So that's one of the big three that I wanted to discuss. The other one very quickly is obviously AI ethics. So we're going to go into that. And there's a new headline every week. Uh, some of the classic ones are Amazon having a, a sexist algorithm doing hires, hiring for a large number of jobs in their warehousing. And it was sexist. Or Google being sexist by showing a high paid job ads to men way more than it was showing those job ads to women. We have the Compass algorithm in the US where it would try to predict if people were going to re-offend and then that information, the judge would take it into consideration for the sentencing of people. And that algorithm was found to be racist because Latinos and African-Americans were getting penalized while uh, the white people were not. We're getting new ones every day. Either this week or last week, there was one around healthcare where an algorithm was choosing what level of healthcare different people in this study were going to get. And spoiler alert, it was racist. The white people were getting access to better care, to better nurses, uh, not better nurses, more access to nurses. They were, they were able to call nurses on the phone while African-Americans and Latinos were being told to essentially wait at home to see if their symptoms would go away. In general, and I think the media has a big part to play with this, but also our understanding of, of AI, people demonize the algorithms and they say that naughty algorithm is racist, it's sexist, etc. And I think what we have to realize there is that the algorithm only learned that bias because that bias was in the data that it was fed to be trained on. So the algorithm becomes racist because of the data. The data is biased because it's a representation of our world. So it's our own inherent biases that are being captured in the data that then go into the algorithm. So then we'll go into the ethics discussion a bit later. But my point of view is that whenever there's a story around AI ethics, a racist or biased algorithm gets discovered and brought to light, I celebrate it. And I think that we usually try to say that, oh, people were making mistakes and these mistakes were being unseen. Yes, but that happens in every industry everywhere. And obviously the stakes here are quite high, but it, it's great that we're having these conversations. It's great that we get to fix one more algorithm. And I think that we should have a positive disposition to finding these errors so then we can eradicate them and we can have the tough conversations that we need to have in order to improve what AI can do. But we really need to, uh, it's really pro just providing a mirror to ourselves and to society. And we need to look ourselves hard in that mirror and decide how we want to be and then go and craft that society through our work, but then not not look away and, and pretend that if somebody made a, a racist or sexist algorithm, then they're the worst person. No, we should uh, celebrate those findings and, and trying to get them more, even more of them out into the light so we can improve faster. Sorry, and I'll, I might leave it there. <laughs> Just coming back in to do a, a segue. So that was part one, which is a new things in the industry. And now going into part two, which is uh, my views on privacy. It's a great question. So thank you so much for weaving so well the different topics that Leif and I have been talking about because it's difficult to do it on the spot. So you're doing, <laughs> that is awesome. Look, from my perspective, when it comes to the privacy and the concerns of people, I think that what people actually want is convenience and value. And when there is actual value to be gained, people are happy, have very happily, as we've seen with social media, very happily, they can give away privacy. 
And I think that the personal opinion, it might be controversial, but personal opinion is that I think that the discussion around privacy uh, heightens when we move it away from value. And when we talk about privacy in a theoretical manner that is standalone, I think that there's a lot of focus on privacy there. But for example, if I know for a fact that one of the applications of the Fitbit data that you're uh, so generously sharing, from that information, for elderly people, they can predict the likelihood to fall, right? So for elderly people, a fall is sometimes not only life-limiting, but sometimes life-ending. So the elderly, they can fall and they can break their hips, and then that significantly reduces their lifespan. So if you said, I can give my data and I can be told whether I'm going to fall and whether and I can extend my life as a result, people are in the majority of times, happily to do that because they're getting a direct value and benefit. But when we're not clear about what is the value for the individual, what we can do, then people start to feel like they don't know what can be done with the data. So that's, that's when you feel like you want to close up because of the uncertainty, because of the unknown. But if we focus on value, if we focus on making a difference, and if we're clear and direct, I think that's the way the taboo discussion that we should be having about privacy that is under that lens and not far away from value. Now coming back in to do, introduce part three. That was part two, and now uh, we go into the discussion on quantum computing and how it relates to machine learning. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for that. So um, a couple months ago in uh, Data Science Melbourne Meetup Group, we had an evening on quantum computing and how where it's at and how it applies to machine learning. And one of the speakers logged into a quantum computer there live and programmed a quantum computer. And we had five qubits, so five, essentially the equivalent of five bits to play with. And what a lot of people didn't realize, and I didn't, definitely didn't know anything about it beforehand, is that the results are a probabilistic. So you try to do a calculation and you get an array, a distribution of numbers. And also the quantum data cannot be copied. So the, the data can be, essentially the calculation can be processed in the quantum computer, but at the moment that you try to see what the result is, the data can is no longer quantum, essentially, and then is no longer a, a, a quantum computer or, or quantum data. I think that the future of it is definitely potentially incredible. There are a lot of applications where it can make a huge difference. And definitely one of the main ones that's being spoken about is around security and cracking uh, encryption. There are many things where traditional computers are going to continue to do much better for a long time. So quantum computer, when it comes, I think it's going to be a good, a great complement to the computing paradigm that we've had and developed over time so far. I just, the only thing is that I do think it's coming. I think it's going to be revolutionary, definitely. And and with so many things, when you look into the future, it's difficult to gauge at what point you need to start paying more attention to it. And for me personally, it's when people go home and they use it. Today, anyone that goes home and logs into a quantum computer and spends, say, hours programming it, partially because in some of these you have uh, five qubits available, 
One of the bigger ones, I think you can log in and have you have about 75 or 76 qubits available to you. The computation like those can do it very simple, but the improvement rate is there. And obviously it's silly to dismiss something because it's early in the improvement curve, especially when it's an exponential technology such as this one. But then for me personally, the trade-off comes into like when are people able to use it even and especially the early adopters. When are people spending four hours a day on a quantum computer programming and what is that number of people at? And and that's when we're going to see the switch over to some more mainstream applications. And now for the final part of the discussion, this one is on new AI developments and how they are already impacting jobs. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. And it's really interesting because I completely agree with what Leif was saying. And there is, I think what a lot of people don't realize, and I know that for a long time, I, I didn't realize is the amount of progress that we've had recently is tremendous. And you can just looking at the trend line, you can see the amount of transformation, drastic transformation that it's going to have on society. So for example, at the moment, there's large companies uh, like Bloomberg, that they use AI to write 25 to 30% of their news articles. There's other companies that are taking news articles, and they're making custom videos and AI is making custom videos on the fly for that article. There are AIs that are summarizing legal texts, that are summarizing medical texts, right? So the amount of progress is amazing. And obviously that leads to people to say, A, we're going to have a much, much more efficient economy and we're going to be producing value much faster because we'll have those feedback loops that are enabled from AI and definitely. And then the other side is that people worry about job losses, right? So if highly skilled jobs are going to be essentially taken away by AI, uh, what's going to happen to us all that we have these jobs? And for me, the kicker there is that a lot of the jobs are going to be enhanced by AI, not replaced by AI. And that in my view, a job exists because there are problems to be solved. <laughs> I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead with the program. You can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands, growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US. Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. 
If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.